Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Trustworthy Saying. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 11, 2016. After hiking for a month in rural Italy on the way of St. Francis this July, my wife and I walked around Rome for a week. We were typical tourists, which, among other things, meant that one of our stops was the Christian catacombs. There are nearly 60 catacombs, five of which are open to the public. We went to the oldest and one of the largest and best-preserved catacombs called Domatila, with nine miles of underground caves that held 150,000 bodies. These catacombs contain a treasure trove of the earliest known Christian art. Art and architecture flourished in classical Greece and Rome, of course, but Christians were slow to express their ideas about the word in images. Jeffrey Spear writes in his book, for example, No churches, decorated tombs, nor indeed any Christian works of art of any kind, datable before the third century, are known. But then around the year 200, purely Christian images began to appear. The catacombs in and around Rome, along with the discovery of a house church at Dura Europas in Syria dated to 240 AD, show how the earliest Christian art was not merely decorative but intentionally devotional. Its purpose was not objective beauty but an expression of faith. This early Christian art appeals, appears on seal rings, tombs, clay lamps, engraved gems, and in one instant, a marble statuette. A hundred years after that, Christian art adorns belt buckles and Bible covers, plates and coins, intricate mosaics and ornate crosses. Eventually, Christian art under Emperor Constantine changed radically as images and even architecture became imperialized. Most early Christian art drew upon well-known Bible texts like Noah, Daniel in the lion's den, Moses, Jonah, Adam and Eve, and Abraham. The Gospel for this week from Luke 15 is a case in point. Jesus the Good Shepherd is portrayed in all sorts of artistic mediums. It's far and away one of the most common artistic motifs. The life of Jesus reveals the heart of God. He does this with crystalline clarity in Luke 15, where we read that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. To emphasize this divine welcome, God's unconditional acceptance, Jesus tells three parables that repeat the same point, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then most memorably, the lost prodigal son. When Jesus finds the lost sheep, Luke writes, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And this detail, a sheep on top of Jesus' shoulders, is exactly what we see in the wall painting in the catacomb of Priscilla. People felt safe with Jesus. 
He exuded compassion. Jesus welcomed the people we ignore and despise, the sexually suspicious, the religiously impure, ethnic outsiders, rich tax scammers and lazy poor people, soldiers of the Roman oppressors, the chronically sick and the mentally deranged, women with multiple marriages, widows, children, even his closest disciples who betrayed him. The people who didn't feel safe with Jesus were the religious experts who appointed themselves as gatekeepers of God's love. And they had good reason to feel unsafe. In Matthew 23, Jesus denounced them with seven woes as hypocrites, snakes, and blind guides. When Jesus welcomed the unwelcomed, when he accepted the unacceptable without any preconditions, he angered the religious experts. Luke says that they quote-unquote muttered. In the parable of the prodigal son, the older son got angry at his father's indiscriminate compassion for his younger brother. Whether then or now, there's a bitter irony in how the simple act of accepting another person angers some people. But whereas the gatekeepers of God's love get angry, Jesus says three times that there's joy in heaven when the lost sheep is rescued, when a misplaced coin is found, and when the prodigal son comes home. In this week's epistle, Paul uses himself as an example of what he calls God's unlimited patience. God's welcome, says Paul, is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Throughout the New Testament, Paul describes himself as a former religious zealot who tried to exterminate the early Christian movement. In Acts, he supported the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Luke writes, breathing threats of murder. Paul collaborated with authorities to track down believers from house to house, drag them back to Jerusalem, and then imprison them. He worked fervently, he says, to, quote, destroy the church, end quote. To the Corinthians, he admitted that he didn't deserve to be called an apostle and was instead the least of the apostles because of his violent past. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. To the Philippians he bragged, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And finally, in this week's epistle to Timothy, as an old man, Paul was still haunted by his past. He describes himself as, quote, formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. But God welcomed Paul and his conversion moved him from violent aggression to indiscriminate love. We don't need to do anything to receive God's welcome, 
because in fact there's nothing to do. God welcomes us just like we are and right where we are. Martin Luther described faith as the beggar's empty hand that simply accepts a gift. And so the beautiful words in the powerful poem by Edwina Gately, let your God love you, say nothing, ask nothing, let your God look upon you, that is all. The only thing to do is to accept that we are accepted. In the words of Paul Tillett, you are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you, and the name of which you don't know. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens, we experience grace. And as the Presbyterian Donald McCulloch puts it, grace tells us that we are accepted just as we are. We may not be the kind of people we want to be. We may be a long way from our goals. We may have more failures than achievement. But we are nonetheless accepted by God, held in his hands. Such is his promise to us in Jesus Christ, a promise we can trust. Safe with the Good Shepherd, a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. For books this week, we review Jessica Knoll, Luckiest Girl Alive, a novel, New York, Simon & Schuster, 2015. This book is 368 pages long. This is a guest book review by Carrie Leroy. The recent case of Brock Turner, the former Stanford University student who was handed down what many people thought was an unusually light sentence, six months for sexually assaulting an inebriated unconscious young woman on campus, spurred outrage and, if nothing else, a robust national dialogue about consent, victim blaming, and judicial bias in the context of sexual assault charges. Turner's father wrote a letter to the judge presiding over his son's case, pleading for leniency, dismissing the sexual assault as merely, quote, 20 minutes of action, end quote, in his son's otherwise ordinary and apparently felony-free life. The victim in the case, whose identity has been kept confidential, wrote a courageous, powerful letter that she read to her attacker in court that went viral and even prompted Vice President Joe Biden to pen a response in support of the victim and ending rape culture on college campuses. Jessica Knoll's debut novel, Luckiest Girl Alive, explores the insidious nature of rape culture and victim blaming. Although a work of fiction, the author eventually acknowledged that perhaps that the perhaps hardest part of her novel, that is a rape scene, is in fact based on her own experience of rape by student-athletes when she was in high school. Noel acknowledges that it took her many years to realize that what she experienced in high school was in fact rape. Luckiest Girl Alive is a courageous and important novel 
that forces its readers to abide in a place of extreme discomfort. As its protagonist, Tiffany Finelli, or Annie, survives not only rape, but the judgment of her peers and family who, not unlike the Brock Turner apologists, condemn the victim for her poor, alcohol-impaired judgment. This novel has many surprisingly dark twists and turns that make it a page-turner. It's certainly entertaining, well-written, and an overall good read. What sets it apart, however, is the exploration of how a victim of a horrific instant of sexual assault internalizes and accepts her place in a social order that has the capacity to produce an outcome like the Brock Turner slap-on-the-wrist sentence. Awareness that something was done to young Annie, as opposed to invited by Annie due to her alcohol consumption, only comes to her much later. It's undoubtedly difficult for most people to think about rape and perhaps our own complicity in perpetuating rape culture in this country. Luckiest Girl Alive offers an important perspective, in particular for teenagers. Boys and girls who are trying to figure out how, and perhaps whether, they should fit into this current social order and accept or challenge its underlying values. No, star athletes do not matter more than rape victims, whether in Steubenville, Ohio, or on campuses at prestigious Stanford University. No, having sex with an unconscious person should never be justified or described as merely 20 minutes of action. And a person who is incapacitated, regardless of how she became incapacitated, might deserve the physiological consequences of binge drinking, but not to be sexually assaulted by her fellow human. As I'm sure Noel would concur, if we are to stop rape, we need to pe teach people not to rape, Take the focus off of the victim and ask the question, how did we arrive at a time and place in history in which the sexual exploitation of an incapacitated person could be described as 20 minutes of action? Annie's story, perhaps not unlike Knowles, is unique in that it breaks the code of silence and secrecy that is the foundation of rape culture. And just maybe, Noel's further revelation of her own experience of rape will put another crack in that shaky foundation. The name of the book, Luckiest Girl Alive. That was a book review by Carrie Leroy. For movies this week, I review a title a documentary film called Policing the Police from 2016. This one-hour PBS Frontline documentary aired on June 28, 2016. It features the New Yorker correspondent Jelani Cobb, who spent a year investigating the Newark, New Jersey Police Department one of three dozen police departments around the country that have been investigated by the Justice Department for abusive tactics, discrimination, and violating the constitutional rights of people. 
For Cobb, the many issues surrounding police accountability serve as a gauge of broader race relations in the country. And more specifically, he wants to know just what it would take for policing to experience true reform. He goes on ride-alongs with the gang unit. He interviews the mayor of Ras Baraka, the head of the police union, who was a fourth-generation cop. The backroom communications department, described as a disaster. The police director, who was later demoted. And a local neighborhood watch group. He acknowledges that many police departments are underfunded, overworked, and very much under fire. The ride-alongs make you see and feel just how stressful police jobs are as they seek to address gangs, guns, drugs, and violence. At the end of the film, there are no easy or obvious answers, just many complex questions. I watched this film for free from the Frontline website. Once again, the title, Policing the Police. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Daniel Berrigan, the Jesuit priest. The title of the poem is called To St. Peter Claver. As a reference, St. Peter Claver lived from 1581 to 1654. He was a Spanish Jesuit priest and missionary born in Verdú, who, due to his life and work, became the patron saint of slaves, the Republic of Colombia, and ministry to African Americans. Once again, a poem by Daniel Berrigan. It's called To St. Peter Claver. Heal us, Jesuits, the overly content, the malcontent, the skilled and seer of heart, the secret weepers, the self-defeated, the defaulters, the proud of place drinking the empty wind of honor. Help the workhorses slow, speed the laggards, give back to routine and rote their lost soul. Institution, constitution, order, law. Oh, kiss the dead awake, your Holy Spirit come. Daniel Berrigan to St. Peter Claver. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, September 11th, 2016, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.